Welcome to season two of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, burnout survivor, and behavior change scientist. I interview international burnout experts, HR and DEI leaders, and lifestyle coaches to find out how we can create individual, organizational, and cultural change to prevent burnout. When mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I'm learning about Understanding Communities to Prevent Burnout with researcher and community advocate, Dr. Militia Witt-Glover. I wanted to speak with Militia because her experience of burnout had guided me to know when I was ready to leave academia. But I also knew how hard she still worked to do her research and support her community. And I wanted to understand how she coped. I particularly wanted to hear her ideas about systems change and how communities can lead change. Her description of a training program to reduce bias in healthcare was an added bonus I was not expecting and relevant because burnout in physicians can also lead to bias. This week's behavior change guide based on the episode focuses on advocating for safe spaces for physical activity. Physical activity is important for our health in so many ways, but particularly for stress management related to burnout. Getting out into the community for physical activity has benefits for our mental health, but also our community health, because more active places are also safer places. You can find the guide and Militia's key takeaways on the episode website, drjacquelinecurr.com slash podcast. And next week, I'll be doing a mini episode on how to set up that behavior plan for advocating for safe spaces for physical activity, as recommended by Militia. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. My name is Militia Witt-Glover. I have two sons. They are 13 and 14 now. And my current roles, I play two roles. For the past 12 years, I have been the president and CEO of a company I founded called Gramercy Research Group, which is an independent research firm. And then since July of 2020, I have been also the executive director for the Council on Black Health, which is a national organization focused on improving health in Black communities. Great. Thank you so much, Militia. So could you just describe the journey um, that you've been through to get where you are now? Because as I know, it's been back and forth and up and down. It has been back and forth and up and down. And we've talked a lot about it over the years. So switched majors a couple of times and ultimately landed with an undergraduate degree in exercise science. No one in my family knew what exercise science was. It wasn't something I had heard of. I majored in it, frankly, because I had some interest in exercise. And that was the degree that took all the credits I had and allowed me to graduate on time. I didn't know what to do with that degree. And one of my advisors suggested that I go ahead and get my master's in exercise science. And then she said, you should get a doctorate. And at that point, other than professors, I had I didn't know anybody personally who had a doctorate. So I didn't even know what a PhD was or what that entailed. And at the time we were studying how to measure physical activity and I wanted to do something about it. So I always knew in all my careers, I wanted to do something to make a difference in people's lives to help people. I wanna do something like these interventions. So I applied for some funding to be able to pay for a postdoc. That's how I ended up starting my career in academia. 
when people ask me what my career and how did I get here and they think I had a plan, I didn't even I didn't even know what exercise science was. When I got my doctorate in epidemiology, I didn't even know what epidemiology was, but I knew it. I learned it was a study of people and I said this seems interesting. And so when I went to Philadelphia, I had never been there before. I had never lived in a large city like that before. So it was an interesting change and I was studying interventions I didn't know anybody in Philadelphia, and I decided that I wanted to be brave and go out and start doing things in the community. And so I would go to, I would look up things online and figure out where I could go. I would go to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I was wandering around by myself. I was brought up in church, and my parents always said, when you go somewhere, find a good church. And I said, no, how am I going to find a church, a a good Black Baptist church in Philadelphia, and I don't know anybody. And sometimes people have those bumper stickers that say, follow me to such and such a church. I'm the person that does that. If you put that bumper sticker on your car, I'll follow you. So I did that a couple of times, couldn't really find anything, but ended up one day at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, they had a gospel choir performance. And I said, oh, I'll go check this out. And struck up a conversation with a couple of people at the church, ended up joining the church joining the choir. I was there for a number of years. And so that was how I started to build a little bit of a community in Philadelphia. I was starting to do more and more work with my church because I was doing physical activity interventions. I was doing volunteer work at my church. How are you going to fit that into your academic work. And one day somebody at my church said, what do you, what do you do? What's your job? What do you do when you're not here? And I explained the research that I do. And they said, why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you teaching those kinds of things at church? We would benefit from this kind of information about health and physical activity. And I said, oh, I never thought about that. And that's where I got the idea to do my first faith-based physical activity program. I love that. I've been thinking about that recently, having my grant writing business, being a mom, like where's the synergy? And I'm finding a lot of synergy working on burnout in moms. And that really helps when you've got these multiple roles. You've got this church and your job and they shouldn't be competing. You created synergy between them. And that really helps with things like burnout. So That's awesome. And it all worked out. I ended up in North Carolina at an academic institution. Shortly after I got here, got married. Shortly after that, I had two sons. And so it was really living the academic life, doing the things that you're supposed to do to try to get promoted and tenured, working on a number of committees, trying to manage two babies who were 13 months apart, driving back and forth, writing, writing grants, doing presentations, and just really started to feel like I was dragging because I was doing community-based work. And that meant my work happened during the day with the institution. Mm -hmm. But if I really wanted to be engaged with the community, I also had to do things in the evenings when the people I was interested in working with were off. So I've got to be there during the day because I feel obligated to be there when everybody else gets there who are doing secondary data analyses or clinical studies where their work happens between eight and five, but then I also have to do these evening things. And I also have a one and a two-year-old, a two and a three-year-old. And I just started getting really burned out and stressed out at trying to do it all. And I knew that it was time to make a change when I got to the point where I was in tears every day on the way to work, because I would get up, get my children dressed, take them to some form of daycare, pick them up, bring them home, feed them, bathe them, put them to bed, and then do it all over again. And I felt like I was never seeing my children. I only used my house to keep my clothes. And I just, 
I worked and worked and it just didn't seem like I was getting anywhere and I was miserable. And I remember you telling me that story about being on the way to work and crying on the way to work. And I remember I was asking you about that because I was unsure. I was struggling, but I didn't know at what point did you know to leave or not? And when you had said that to me about crying on the way to work, I was like, you know what? I'm not doing that. And then when I started to (laughs) cry on the way to work and cry on the way to home, because I was struggling at home too, it was just like, okay, thank you, Militia. You gave me that reality check. Sometimes your brain can't talk to you, but an outside cue like that reminded me, oh goodness, I'm where Militia was. And next step in your story, you you, you left, right? Yeah. The next step in my story was I, I left. And so when I started thinking more about leaving and I was talking to the person with the independent research firm, her strategy was she was growing her organization and wanted to have more people there. And so the plan was that I was going to transition to her company. By that time, I had applied for and had gotten a couple of grants on my own. Everybody was telling me it's absolutely crazy. You you can't survive outside of academia. And I took a leap of faith and, and agreed to join this woman's company and left and started the transfer of my grants. And so I took this leap of faith. I stepped out and I fell flat on my face because within a month of me leaving, she decided that she changed her mind. But all I knew was I had left my secure academic job. I was at that point the primary breadwinner at home. I had two young children and we had no income and no insurance. And so I had to figure out something fast. And one of the things that I knew that I had was this person had been helping me to understand how an independent research firm worked. So basically, I had this guidebook that I didn't even know that I was going to need. I didn't want to go back to academia, even though they would have let me come back. I just, I was like, I can't keep doing this. And so I decided that, you know what, I think that was the step that I needed to be able to pull me out for me to be able to stand up on my own. And so I ended up using that guidebook and and formed my company, Gramercy Research Group, which combines the words grace and mercy. And I filed my formal paperwork on March 17th, 2009. And we've been going strong ever since. What would you say in terms of both the internal and external factors that maybe were driving you to feel that need to leave and, and to not go back at that stage? You mentioned doing the community work. In academia, they talk about being penalized when you're a community researcher, just because you do invest so much time in the community. And perhaps it's not the cell research that gets taken up by the top journals and things like that. But really, like you described, it was almost like a time penalty uh, as well that you were paying. What else contributed to that? Because you could have, I suppose, chosen to say, oh, I don't work during these hours because I do my work in these hours. So talk a little bit about other things that that maybe contributed to, to you really feeling that need to leave. Yeah, so it was interesting. So as a Black woman in, in, in academia, in a department that wasn't very diverse, I, I felt this intense pressure. I was always tapped, it seemed to be on all these committees or to provide, do all this service to the institution. Because in my mind, I feel like it checked two boxes in terms of now we've got a woman and we've got diversity on whatever this committee was. And I just never 
I never felt, and it might not be true, I never felt like I had the freedom to say, I only work these hours because I do my work in the evenings. Because I feel like I was expected to be there when there were faculty meetings, I was expected to be there. And those faculty meetings, if it's at nine o'clock in the morning, I can't say, I didn't feel like I had the freedom to say, I'm not gonna come because there are these unwritten rules and unspoken expectations. And so I I was doing that. And then like many academic institutions, there is a history in communities where academic institutions do research. There's a history in some communities, particularly racial and ethnic uh, minority communities where those academic institutions can fly in, do their research and fly out and do a lot of taking from communities and not a lot of giving back. And this community was certainly no exception. Uh, there, there were some historical issues that had happened. And so when I was going out and doing my community work, I would find myself almost apologizing for coming from the academic institution because I was often met with a lot of suspicion until I got to know folks. And the other thing that would happen, this, this is not a small town, but it is a small town. So I would run, often run into people from my research studies in the grocery store or at church. And so I never really was able to get away from my work. I lived as a part of the community. I was a part of the community. And so I also felt like there were these expectations there too, that if I said that I was going to do things, or if they said, we we need, these are the things we need in the community, that I felt this obligation to be able to provide that. And sometimes when you work in institutions that have a lot of processes, things can move slow. There's a lot of red tape. You say you want to give people a stipend for participating in something, but then there's this red tape that says you can only do it a certain way. People in the community didn't necessarily understand why it would take me three months to get IRB approval to do something when you know they're ready to move yesterday. So there was this pressure. And then I said earlier, I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do. I think I landed in the right place with this career, but I knew I wanted to do something to improve conditions for my community. And I just felt like my hands were tied so much when I was trying to do that in an academic institution. And I'll just give you an example. I work in an office with Gramercy Research Group, and we had a study that we did that included Black men that ended in 2018. We still have participants from that study who come and ring the doorbell and ask for help. I, I would say for the past week, one of our former participants has been coming to the office because he needs help with getting unemployment uh, benefits and getting housing and getting his medical benefits. And he's on his own. He's moved around a lot. And many of the things that that he has to do require him to have computer access, um, internet access, video access. And he's an older gentleman. He can provide the information, but he just kept getting foiled in the process. My team here has been helping him for the past week. He would never have been able to walk into my office at Wake Forest and get that because that study ended three years ago. We're not funded to do that work anymore. But that's the kind of work that matters. And that's the kind of impact I want to have. And I just felt I could have some of that impact in the academic institution, but not nearly as much as I feel like I can have being outside an academic institution, but still being able to partner as needed. I, I think those are awesome examples. And and I can see that. And we read a lot about the the pressure of serving on committees and things like that. But you can really 
see how that just all leads to more time invested. The workload has to change to prevent burnout. The workload has to change. And that's adding to the workload in such a obligated, pressured way. And again, that's the other piece that has to change for burnout is autonomy. And so that's really what you were able to gain through your business. So tell me a little bit about running a business and having your kids. (laughs) I often feel this pull between being a mom and being passionate about what I do. (laughs) Yeah. So it was a little bit, I don't know, some days I think it was a little bit more difficult when they were younger. And some days I think it was a little bit easier. So when I decided that I was going to start the business, I had a, a cousin who kept the children at her house. And so it was a home environment. And then when we decided to switch gears, I was fortunate that I ended up renting building space right across the street from a childcare center. So that actually made it easier because we would all go to work together and I literally could walk right across the street and drop them off, walk right across the street and pick them up. And so there were days we made it work when I had to work late. I, up until probably two years ago, I had an inflatable mattress and blankets in my office, in my first office, one of my bookshelves, it had toys and books on it for them because they would come and hang out in mom's office. They knew where snacks and things were. And so we made it work and we could integrate it. Having my own business meant that I could, if I needed to work from home because somebody got sick, I could do that because who was going to tell me that I couldn't do it? If somebody needed to be picked up during the day, if I wanted to pop over and have lunch, I could do that. I got to be story mom because I could, they were literally, it was right across the street and I could say, okay, I'm going to take a 30 minute break and walk across the street and read a story. So in some ways that was easy, but in some other ways it was hard because when you're running your own business, you're hustling all the time because if you're not writing grants, getting contracts, doing the work to bring in a paycheck, then you don't get paid. And so that also means if somebody gets sick, I have to work around it because it's not like somebody else is, you know, is bringing the business in. I had to do that. As my boys have gotten older, it's gotten easier running a business and having children because as long as the internet's on and the refrigerator stocked, teenagers don't care what you do. It's interesting because I was going to ask about personal boundaries and strategies that you enjoy. But when you say you had a mattress in the office, okay, maybe you don't set any boundaries. So how do you set space for your own self-care, for your mental health, your physical health? It seems like you're on 24-7. How do you cope? So some months it's better than others. It really depends on what I have going on, but I have to be diligent because I realize that if I don't protect my space, no one else will. And so I have started doing things like I create appointments on my calendar that really aren't appointments, but it just allows me space and freedom to be able to just take a mental break. We started a tradition a couple of years ago from Memorial Day until Labor Day. We don't work on Fridays. I make it a point to not schedule anything for my team or myself on Fridays. And so we have three-day weekends in the summer. Depending on how stressful it gets, I try to go into my calendar and block off whole days where I don't have any meetings. And I try to do at least two of those days a month where I don't have any meetings. I do let work leak over a little bit into my evenings now, but I had gotten to a point where I didn't work outside of the office hours. I try to block off time for myself, but you're right. You have to have those personal 
boundaries. And so if you're not looking out to say, I have a boundary, I have a meeting with myself, with my Peloton bike or whatever bike you have, I have a meeting with my massage therapist and it can't be changed. You have to set those boundaries for yourself because otherwise people will encroach. And you have to be able to keep those meetings with yourself. Just if you were meeting with somebody else, you wouldn't let something else encroach on it. The meetings with yourself are just as important, but I find too that if I am not diligent and conscious of it, there will be days where I have meetings all day long back to back because people have put things on my calendar and I literally don't even have time to take a bio break or eat anything. And that's not healthy. And I know that I'm not my best self when I don't take that time for myself. And I think that's the thing is your personal life and your work life are going to blend into each other. It's just going to happen. And so you have to, sometimes I come in late because I got to do something at home. And sometimes I, I, I bring work home because some things have to be done and you just have to try to find that balance. Yeah, I I agree. I've read different books that along different themes in that way. It's like, you can't have it all at the same time. And, and I really appreciate what you're saying about blocking chunks. Cause my burnout journey was really like trying to discover what, what went wrong and what I could do differently. You have to block times out in your diary as though they're rocks in a cup and then everything else falls around it. So I love that you're doing that in the summer. That's a really important approach. So now you ended up having the business, then going back into academia, and and now you're running this council. So tell me a little bit more again about the decision to, to go there, because one, one of the things that I, I'm definitely thinking about it is when people burn out, like you and I, we both end up leaving the institution. That's really one of the features of burnout it, it is that you actually have to leave. You can't stay. You can't keep it as it was. But then I feel like I'm hearing about so many women who are running businesses, and I love that and think it's awesome. But I'm also concerned that we're stepping away from that institutional table. And so where are we um, losing our influence there? So tell me a little bit more about then going back into academia and then now doing this council role. And, and again, where you think you can have the most influence and why is that? Yeah, so I was doing Gramercy by itself for a number of years. So from 2009 until um, 2017 or so, and was doing fine. And I was taking a number of interns every year from one of the local um, universities here, historically Black College, Winston-Salem State University. And I just kept thinking with the community-based research that I do, they would be such amazing partners because of their role in the community, their respect in the community, their influence in the community, the fact that they train scholars and educate scholars who would look like the community and and having an insider perspective as being a part of a community can really influence your research. And I thought maybe I could have an adjunct position at a university and kind of dip a toe in the water, but still stay out of academia. That turned into a paid consultant position. They happen to have a, a center of excellence for the elimination of health disparities there. And as a part of my consulting, one of the things that I advised them to do was when the person who led that center was considering retiring, I suggested that they identify an interim director for that center until they hired somebody permanent so that they could keep the work going 
because I knew that there were some things coming down the pipe that they could, they might be able to apply for. And so I was surprised because I said an interim director internally, and then they came back and said, can you do it? And I said, well, no, I'm not internal. And they said, yes, but can you do it anyway? And I had some hesitation about going back into an academic position, but I thought my focus is on doing work to improve health conditions in the Black community. This is in a health profession school at a historically Black college. What better way to influence that? And so I, I went in trying to help while leading that center with the idea that I could really help with what I learned about research and how to be effective at Wake Forest. I could apply that to an HBCU. University was founded as a teaching institution, and so research was getting started, getting up and going, and there were a number of things that were definitely positive, but also a number of things that made it difficult to really do research at the institution. So I pushed and I made things happen, but it was like making things happen by just by my own sheer will and not as much support as I thought that I might see. And when I got to the point again, where I was crying on the way to work, and sometimes I would just cry in frustration, I would have to go sit in my car and just cry. I got to the realization faster than I did the first time. And I said, I can't go down this road again. And so I made the decision that I had to leave because at that point, I was also looking more at how do you use your interventions and your research to change policy systems and environments, because then that makes it easier to change individuals, impact individuals. And I thought I may be more impactful and more helpful if I am outside of an academic institution, but doing things that could benefit or could bring them along rather than being embedded in the institution. So what was different was I was at a different type of institution instead of being at a predominantly white institution, I was at a, at a historically black college. Both have strengths and weaknesses, but what I realized is that academia is probably not where I am meant to be and that I can be beneficial in helping to influence policy systems and environments, but I can better do that outside of an academic institution. So you mentioned there about changing people when there are systems and other things in place. So I really want this podcast to be focused on solutions. And like you, I know that even just if you knew what to change, how to change it is the big problem. But tell me a little bit more. Give me a vision of solutions you'd like to see for society as a whole or, or, or regarding Black health or for women, for Black women. What things would you like to see change? And what have you learned from your research and your work and your roles that you can you know, bring to you that unique lens that you have? Um, so that's a great question. So one of the projects that I was working on when I was at Winston-Salem State was looking at unconscious bias and perceptions that people have in the medical system. And we actually did a series of vignettes where we looked at an issue related to unconscious bias from the perspective of the patient, from the perspective of the provider, from the perspective of the practice manager, and from the perspective of a bystander. And we talked about, for all of those people, how everyone had biases and how those biases could impact a person's care and could impact how care is delivered and could impact the person who is providing the care. And that kind of that kind of information can be helpful not only in the classroom as folks are learning how to be providers, but it could also be helpful from the perspective of people who are managing care in healthcare systems. And so if you think about 
For example, how do you change systems to improve the quality of care? It to make it, and I'm just using this as a healthcare example, we want to make it easier for people to access care. And so we often think about the physical structures, but we forget about some of the things related to how are people treated when they go in for care. And so if you walk into a care provider and you feel unwelcome because people have biases that they've never understood that they have, and they don't know how to respond to them, and they don't know how to manage those biases so that they give you the best care, then that could impact your experience. And so by creating that kind of tool, not only could it be used at the university that I was at, but you could also then use that at any number of universities. It could be widespread, and then that begins to impact care across a larger population. And then being able to consult with other institutions to say, here's this tool, let's figure out how you can start to use that and spread the work more broadly. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, because I think we focus a lot on places We focus a lot on structures, but we don't focus on the policies and the systems and the environments and the people that could make those physical structures good or bad. And when you say a tool, because your day-to-day is behavior change, so you don't necessarily think about the pieces that you bring to it that are different from what maybe other people think about it when they think of behavior change because suddenly I've been reading a lot about how some of the unconscious bias training is not effective because if it's just knowledge-based training that doesn't give people opportunities to practice behavior change it doesn't necessarily develop skills it doesn't necessarily have accountability so tell me more what you mean by a tool and and how you actually see real behavior change with these efforts So when we developed the unconscious um, bias guide, we created the vignettes. We created a discussion guide to go along with it. It's supposed to be, the idea is that it is incorporated at all levels in the training that students get while they're in school. So a lot of times when we're doing the unconscious bias training, it's after people are already out and then people feel like they're getting a slap on the wrist and that they've done something wrong. And so they tend to be, I think, a little bit more resentful when they're getting that kind of training. But if it's embedded in in courses, it begins to help people to recognize what their own biases are. And that goes from students who are coming in, it's professors who are teaching courses because Professors may not realize that they have high expectations for some people, low expectations for others, and that influences how they're taught, what they share, what they think people are capable of. And so with the tool that we put together, it was a series of vignettes, but then also discussion guides and an action plan. What do you do now? How do you recognize your biases? What can you do now? What happens? We also shared some information. What happens when you maybe engage in this kind of behavior? We provided some case studies of hospital systems and healthcare systems um, and individuals that that have run into some challenges and some issues legally when they provided biased care. We looked at it from everyone's perspective. So we presented from everyone's perspective. Uh, And I think sometimes that's also helpful because a lot of bias training seems to hit folks over the head with you have these biases and it's wrong. But in our vignette, it it revealed that the care provider who in our vignette was, was Black had her own biases against the patient who was white. And so they were reacting to each other. And and we don't often talk about it that way, that we all have biases and we all have to think about them. And so what can we all do? What what can we all do differently? 
We do a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion coaching for organizations and helping them to understand how do you begin to change policies so that when you're thinking about what you're putting in place, you're also thinking about who might this help, but also who might this harm and what can I do to make sure that everybody benefits equally from whatever this policy or this thing is that I'm getting ready to put into place. I'm so glad you gave this example of bias in healthcare. I recently read a study showing that when physicians are burned out, they treat patients of color worse. And as their burnout lessens, their bias lessens. I think it's so important to realize that our brains, our brain is hardwired for some of our biases and unlearning them is difficult. And when our brains are exhausted, they default to that original hard wiring. So programs have to continue to actively challenge our biases. And starting early in schools, as you did, is a great idea. So back to systems change. I remember having an aha moment as a lecturer when I realized, okay, we need to change policies and and in environments and all these things. And I was like, oh my goodness, how do we do that? And then suddenly I went, oh, it's people who are systems and policies, like somebody is the decision maker. And then I was like, oh, breathe. That just means behavior change 101. I need to learn how to change individuals who are the decision makers. So tell me, what's your perspective on that? How do you feel you change systems and and policies? You can put policies in place. So people have to understand what the policies are and how they work. And I'm realizing and doing more of this work on policy systems and environments that so many of us don't even understand how policies are put into place, what how policies impact people and who makes policy. And so I think it starts with putting policies in place, people understanding those policies, but then it's also accountability. Because if you have a policy in place and no one's held accountable for following it, then it doesn't matter. And so you've still got to make sure that, for example, if you have a policy in place that says chokeholds are banned, but nobody gets punished for there's no repercussions for using a chokehold, then what's the point of having that policy? And so we've got to understand what policies are so we can make sure that when it's time to call those things up, if someone violates it, that we we know what those policies are, but then we've also got to be able to hold people accountable. And we've got to understand who our policymakers are because we elect people who represent us in our different communities and we don't hold them accountable. And we've got to do that. And if those people who are elected who make the policies are not making the policies that are in our favor, then we've got to find new policymakers. And I often think that particularly communities that have been historically underrepresented, I don't know that we often recognize the power that we have to um, collectively make change. We're seeing some change happening now in terms of things like the Equity for All Act, and we're seeing where there are some policies that are coming into play, but I don't know that everyone understands how policies and rules and laws are made. Because I'll say that for myself personally, I didn't really even give too much thought to it. And most Mm -hmm. of the time we don't until it's something that impacts us personally. And I think I started to understand that a little bit when I was working on PE policy, because then you saw that there were mandates, but they had no enforcement and they had no staffing at the state level to send people out to enforce them. So they never happen. I think there is the enforcer side of it, but there's also the incentive side people who do the right thing 
should be the ones getting promoted, not the people that are doing the wrong thing. I can see that in workplaces where it's not just that there's a policy, there's also got to be this incentive to go with the policy because return on investment is there. We know that from diversity, the return on investment is there. Yeah, the return on the investment is there, but I think people treat so many things like pie. If I give you something, then it's less for me. And we often forget that we rise together and we fall together. We are all tied together and we just don't recognize that enough. I don't think. I love that very nicely put. One of the things that I want to get out of the interviews is that I'll do a little behavior change guide around a topic so that people um, can see, okay, here's a suggestion of a behavior change, but here's also how you create a behavior change plan. And you've got to think about the barriers and you've got to think about accountability. So I'd love for you to, to give me a behavior change that I could work on, either like a personal one that you would recommend or something more related to an institutional or a policy or community thing that I could think about, okay, how would I do that? And and what would I do? So can you throw one out to me? I wonder if one of the things that I can think about from my personal work that I keep lifting up is we talk about trying to improve disparities in physical activity participation. And I think that, so there's this intersectionality between race and gender in terms of safety and physical activity. And we focus on things like sidewalks and having safe spaces, but how do we work on the cultural aspects of that, like women maybe don't feel as safe going out and exercising in particular spaces, either because they are male dominated or because they may not be safe. And then Black people may not feel comfortable going out and exercising in particular spaces because of over-policing. How can we do a better job of making sure that everyone has safe spaces to exercise. How can we, to get more detailed, how can we all be allies and advocating for that? So we know what some of the issues are related to safety and over-policing. What kinds of behaviors do we all need to be engaging in to make sure that everybody has those same rights to be able to go, to choose to exercise? So we obviously can't force people to engage in health-related behaviors, but what do we need to do to ensure that policy systems and environments change so that everybody has the opportunity to make that choice. Other ideas too would be making sure that people from those communities also can help to articulate what needs are, because I think there's lots of controversy around the conversation about reallocating funding for for policing, because sometimes policing is needed because there are not other resources in the community that would engage people in positive activities. And so is it that we need more police or do we need more more positive opportunities for people to engage in things where we don't need police because people are engaged in positive pursuits? And then maybe just to, to finalize, coming back to burnout, how do you think you can help prevent burnout in your community? And what are you seeing post COVID, during COVID that you've been able to help people with or that you wish there was more? So what's interesting, and I'm just going to speak from from the perspective of my Black women friends, although I know shelter at home was not a positive thing, the number of people who said that 
being at home allowed them the opportunity to finally exhale and they didn't realize they were holding their breath for so long was just surprising to me. And then you realize that when you're getting up every morning and you're having to rush your family out and and, and make sure that you are present and, and maybe you're present in places that are not always welcoming. And so there's always this bit of tension that's there that you just honestly don't feel when you are at home in your space, still being able to get things done, but also being able to stop in the middle of the day as needed to take care of whatever you need to take care of. People seem to give you more grace in during COVID Zoom calls for somebody to be on a phone and a child walk in and then everybody smiles at the camera. It, it was okay to mix. Okay, my, my son needs a snack, so I'm going to do this while I'm still talking to you about this spreadsheet and that's okay because I can do two things. But pre-COVID, that would have been absolutely unacceptable. And now it's okay. Like the fact that people are, you know, real people and we recognize that people are real people and it's okay. I worry that when we quote unquote, go back to normal, we're not going to be able to have the leeway that's needed to be able to say, hey, I need to take this call from home or I need to do this on Zoom or I need to do this from my car because I've got to do X, Y, and Z. And I think it's okay to allow people to figure out the best way for them to be able to get things done and not have these very rigid guardrails around what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Because I think that people started suffering. There might have been some loneliness from not being able to get out and see people, but I think there was also some relief at being able to figure out when and how to do things and just get it done and be trusted that you're going to get it done. And I worry, I have autonomy because I work for myself and you have autonomy, but so many people don't. And I wish that we could trust each other more like to get things done and i'm seeing a lot on social media that as we're going back to normal more and more people are quitting their jobs and are saying no i realize now that i want that autonomy and if you're not willing to give it to me i am perfectly okay with finding somewhere else to work and i hope we keep i hope we all keep discovering what works for us to allow us to get things done, but also um, be able to live our best lives. And we definitely need to create those boundaries, but I, I personally think it's okay to mix and match. It's, it's not taking anything away from the Zoom call if I am also feeding my child at the same time, because it lets you know that I'm human. Thanks so much for listening. You can find additional resources on my website, drjacquelinecurr.com. Please send me feedback and your ideas for episodes or guests and subscribe or follow wherever you listen. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Take control, you're a fighter. Push the limits and see it, you're all.
Yeah.